Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello again, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're here on our bi-weekly mission to bring the world of horror to you. And I feel like we're going to get some argument about this one. I mean, maybe, maybe, <laughs> perhaps. Although I feel like the majority of horror people that I know agree that this is definitely a horror film. Yeah. And also it's our podcast, so we can so say whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. We do what we want. <laughs> yeah. Um, mostly I put this movie on our list because I wanted to talk about it with you because I fully am in the camp that this is a horror film and I want other people to try to see it through that lens too. Anyways, we're talking about Parasite from 2019. I know that when we said Parasite, I'm not sure maybe people thought we were talking about like the legit creature feature. Right, from the 80s. Yeah. yeah. But no, we're talking about Bong Joon-ho's 2019 film Parasite, which hit the ground running. I'm uh-huh. pretty sure this was a Palme d'Or winner. It hit the indie theater scene kind of running. And Bong Joon-ho's movies are in general, like pretty well received and pretty well anticipated. So I actually did not watch this one initially when it first came out. I waited until the pandemic. Yeah, well, this one, a lot of people became aware of it during the pandemic because it won an Oscar. It came out in 2019. So the Oscar ceremony was in March of 2020 when everybody was basically just sitting around. Even people who didn't watch the Oscars were watching the Oscars because what the heck else were you going to do in March of 2020, you know, mid-March of 2020. It was a runaway hit at the Oscars. It won Best Picture, which was a huge surprise. This is the first non-American slash European film to win Best Picture in Oscar history. There's only one other non-American or non-British film that has won Best Picture, and that was a French film. For a film to uh, come out of Korea and win Best Picture was a huge surprise, a huge, perhaps we hope, signal that some things are changing in terms of the Academy and the way that they're viewing films and voting on films. And of course, horror fans, I saw a lot of people even then celebrating this film's win as a win for horror as well. Yeah, you don't see a film like this kind of be a runaway hit and also be watched by as many people. I know a lot of the argument that people have about the Oscars is like, I have never even heard of this movie. When would I have ever seen this movie? This movie hit Hulu, at least when I watched this movie, it was like May or June of 2020. So a couple months after the Oscars, this movie was on Hulu for quite some time. And that's actually how we watched it this time too. And I think that this is a movie that is going to be really highly watched, especially for a movie that is subtitled and not dubbed, which you see is kind of a barrier to some folks watching it because some folks struggle with subtitled movies, being able to pay attention and not just read the words. And I also read that this came out in black and white as well. Yeah, there was a release of this that was in black and white, which I think I've never seen it in black and white, but I think that it might change things a little bit in the movie. Because the movie is already kind of muted colors, not a lot of like bright colors in the film already. 
But yeah, anyways, so the release was sort of interesting and how it kind of like disseminated through folks watching it or having the capacity to watch it. And since movie theaters were kind of shut down when this movie kind of really hit popularity, but it was available on streaming, I think a lot more people watched it than would have otherwise. I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I heard about a lot of people watching this during lockdown because it was on Hulu and because they're like, well... Here's this, you know, history-making Oscar win. It's available on streaming. Why not? You know, and I think mm-hmm. that's great. I think that's one of those, like, kind of happy accidents of the pandemic that more people that maybe wouldn't have otherwise gave this movie a chance because it's a great movie and it's got so much to say, you know. And this is one of those movies that I think, again, had it been released, had everything not lined up with lockdown and the streaming and all of that, it was a movie that I could certainly see, especially American cinema goers, saying, well, there's likely nothing in it for me, mm-hmm. you know, because it is Korean, because it is subtitled. Surely there's nothing I can relate to in this movie. And the beauty of this film is that it is so relatable. The relatability of it just transcends language. The performances transcend language and culture and it's exceptionally relatable, I think, especially for people in American culture. So I'm really glad that more people perhaps had the capacity to give this one a chance. It's definitely a departure from a lot of Bong Joon-ho's other work. Like I saw The Host, which is a creature feature. Uh, It's not high up on the list for folks in America to have watched, although I really like it. Same with Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer is another one. That one did get a really broad audience, but it's more of a sci-fi film. A lot of American, you know, top billing actors in that one. And then another one that folks kind of slept on was Mother. I saw that one and I felt like it was incredibly depressing. And granted, it's been like 10 years since I've seen it. So take that for what you will. (laughs) But uh, this one, it's not a sci-fi movie. It's not a straight up horror movie. It's not a creature feature. So it was certainly a departure. I feel like a class film is a departure for a person who ends up making a lot of genre movies. Yeah, definitely. And this is not that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. uh, Fun fact, he and I share a birthday. Oh, wow. That's cool. Also a Virgo. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, that actually makes perfect sense based on interviews I've read with him, statements he's made about the film, about his style. Yeah, total Virgo. (laughs) I get that. (laughs) Yeah, September 14th. One other thing I did want to mention, and kind of why I made that quip about not being a horror movie. Nowhere have I seen this movie technically classified as a horror movie. Mm -hmm. IMDb has this as a drama thriller. Hulu has this as a Korean comedy which maybe culturally they have a totally different sense of humor than I do. To me, it can only be a horror movie. It can have other types of elements in it. It could be called a dark comedy, I think. I think there's certainly thriller elements, a la Hitchcock. Absolutely. And Juliet and I kind of like pointed out a couple of times in this movie when we were like, this is irrevocably a horror movie. Yeah. I don't know why we want to tiptoe around it so much. Maybe it's because people are angling for this to have, you know, to be Oscar bait or to be award bait or whatever. Maybe it's the musical cues. Maybe it's something where people took it very seriously and so they couldn't see it as being a horror movie. 
which all fair, like everybody has is open to have their own interpretation of a movie like this because there's so many different things being explored, both funny and sarcastic and not funny and very serious. But to me, this at its heart is like totally a horror movie. It's a class horror movie and probably one of the first that we've seen in a sort of trend that we're seeing now Yeah, um, with both movies and TV where we're exploring the horror that is class and crime and poverty and things like that. Not that we never did before, but it's more of a trend, I think, now. I would argue that this film fits right alongside the menu, Mm -hmm. actually. In many ways, in fact, you know, using dark comedy in certain moments to explore class alongside horror, uh, you know. I think part of the... The thing about not defining it as horror has less to say about this film and more to say about people's narrow view of the genre. We've mm-hmm. talked about this before. Some people still only see horror as slashers. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't see beyond a slasher or beyond even, you know, sort of the modern. And not that there's anything wrong with these movies because they're some of my favorite modern movies, modern franchises like The Conjuring and Insidious, these, you know, sort of big budget studio horror films, which are great in their own right. But I tend to think that people that don't define this film and other films as horror have never delved into the world of indie horror, have never delved into the world of art house horror, and the rich history thereof, too. You know, people like to debate whether Hitchcock is horror. A lot of Hitchcock's films are horror, but depending on who you're talking to, their view of horror prevents them from seeing, you know, these films as horror. So um, if you want to read more about this, there's a really good article. It's a guest piece on horrorhomeroom.com. And it's from Alicia Almeida, who is an MA student who has a real interest in horror and is doing that as part of their master's work. And they wrote a whole article about Parasite as a horror film, breaking down some of the elements that they feel are essential, you know, that irrevocably make this a horror film. Uh, And it's a really good piece. We'll link that up in the show notes. I totally read that yesterday, too. (laughs) Uh, Not that I needed to have absolution in this like idea, but I was like, I want to read what other people have to say about this. Mm -hmm. And I think another reason why maybe folks were not initially able to or did not receive this as a horror movie is because the tone shifts so fast yeah, in yeah. the second act of this film. It really, like, it turns the movie on its head. We kind of have this, like, witty, sort of darkly funny setup of a family who is kind of insinuating themselves, and the reason why the movie is called Parasite, a family insinuating themselves into the lives of this very rich kind of hapless family that don't understand the ways that this poorer family has to struggle in poverty. And they're they're sort of insinuating themselves into their lives. And then in the second act, it just kind of gets flipped on its head and really turns itself into a horror movie. And then we just have this like very dark horror trip through poverty and the ways in which the rich kind of prey on people who are poor or in the working class and how they don't even understand themselves, how that can affect those people's lives in both very small and very big ways. So I don't I don't know. I think people have a hard time. They struggle with a movie changing the tone yeah. so quickly or changing the genre so fast in the middle of a movie. For me, it was like shocking and rendered me kind of speechless the first time I watched it. 
this is my third watch through and I still am like shocked. Yeah. And I think the shocking things about it are not Again, I think it's why it's hard it's hard for some people to reckon with this as a horror film. The things that are the most horrific about this despite having, you know, home invasion, which I want to talk about later because I think they do a really interesting flip on the home invasion sort of subgenre or trope. There's talk of a ghost, a suspected haunting, perhaps. There is stabbing, there is killing, there are people thrown down the stairs and bludgeoned and all of this. But all of those things are in service of the most horrific thing, which is the shame, the classism, the casteism that's happening, and the ignorance thereof, and just this burden that the poorer family carries around with them and subsequently other poor folks in the film are carrying with them that becomes ugly that's expressed in really brilliant symbolic ways like that is the true horror of this film and it makes it heavy and it makes it heartbreaking and it makes you think which is exactly what good horror should do But I think if you, again, like I used this example in a prior episode, if you only think of horror as a pretty girl getting chased by Michael Myers with a knife, then, you know, maybe you don't have the capacity to receive what that type of horror has to say. Yeah. One thing that you kind of mentioned that I really wanted to explore is the fact that being in poverty is exhausting. Yes. And the ways in which we see that, like, initially we see this family the key family, they are struggling. They don't have phones. They don't have Wi-Fi, which, as we know now in the modern world, kind of renders you stuck. Yeah. If you don't have enough money to pay for those things, they're putting together pizza boxes as like their form of income. They're just kind of trying to hustle from one one moment to the next. Mr. Kim, well, I'll just call him Mr. Kim, kind of the patriarch of the family is sleeping in the very first scene. He's like laying down on the floor. And it just made me think, if you only saw this kind of glimpse of their life, you might think he's lazy or that he doesn't want to work. But I really want to reinforce the idea that being in poverty as they are, like the poverty level that the Key family is experiencing is constantly exhausting because you're having to think from one moment to the next, how am I going to eat? How am I going to pay for my bills? What's the next thing that I need to do in order to get money? And you can tell that based off of just a couple of the interactions that they have and the conversations that they have over the course of the movie, they never stop. Like they've had multiple business, you know, ventures that have not worked out and potentially they've sunk a lot of money into and maybe that's why they're in the place where they are. But there's a very frank display of this. They live in poverty. They live in a basement, basically below the ground. People are peeing on their doorstep at any given moment. They're getting, you know, fumigation chemicals pumped into their window with no warning. And they're just having to suck it up. Like, Mm -hmm. this is it's a very frank display of the level of poverty that the Key family is living in. And they're constantly having to hustle and figure it out. And... I feel like if you have never had to hustle, that maybe this is sort of an amusing or like darkly funny way of displaying this. But really, it's very plain, I think. It's a very interesting way of describing how exhausting it is to be that level of poor. 
I mean, I love that the movie right away just kind of throws people's impressions of what it is like to be in poverty in their face. You know, the phone thing is such a great, perfect example. Like we start the film right off with the Wi-Fi being out and you've got two, you know, young adults in the family and the parents and they're, you know, the young adults are saying, oh, the Wi-Fi is out, the Wi-Fi is out. And you're like, you know, I think it would be very easy to be like, oh, what, do they want to play games on their phone? Are they mad because they can't like talk to their friends? And you very quickly understand, no, the Wi-Fi is out so they don't have access to WhatsApp. WhatsApp is where a job opportunity might come. Oh, what's the job opportunity? It's not something great. It's putting together pizza boxes, but that's what this family needs right now. It just immediately, as soon as the film starts, it kind of takes, I think, pop culture expectations and just shoves them back in your face. Like, no, this is reality here, you know? Like gig work. Exactly. They're not even looking for something full time, even though the son, Kiwu, he tries to hustle the pizza lady and is like, hire me as a part time. And he really puts it on. And you can see the whole family kind of surround this woman and try to like hustle him into getting this part time job because that's it. That's like the next opportunity that they have to get any sort of cash. And then when she's like, oh, I'll have to think about it. He's like, okay, well, then pay us for the pizza boxes we did put together. Yeah. And who even knows how much money that is? It doesn't look like a lot. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. How much money do you earn making pizza boxes? Is it per box? Is it per hour? Who knows? Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was per box because she was going to dock them. Oh, that's right. Because some weren't folded correctly. Which, like, to me, I'm like, okay. Yeah. Is that she mentioned something about the brand, like that's not a good reflection on the brand. I'm like, it's pizza. Yeah. (laughs) They're pizza boxes. What are we talking about here? Yeah, exactly. But I do think like pretty quickly after that, we're encountering people who have never, ever had to hustle. Right. So Kiwu's friend Min, who is in university and has come home, brings them this scholar stone and like the whole family is like, oh, this is so prestigious. We're so lucky to get this. You know, it's metaphoric. We love it. You know, thank you so much. And the mom kind of says like the quiet part out loud where she's like, yeah, food would have been better. Yeah, exactly. But then it's kind of looked upon as, you know, not respecting the gift or not appreciating what it is that Min is trying to do for them. While at the same token, we can sit from our safe side of the television and say, yeah, probably not the gift that they needed, but the gift that Korean uh, culture or Korean history says, no, you should give this, you should be respectful and thankful for this gift because of what it means symbolically. But we're like, yeah, that's a rock. Yeah. That's a stone that you pulled out of the river. It's thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So seeing both men who we don't know the circumstances of men and like where he's at socioeconomically, but we can kind of understand that he probably has never had to hustle like the key family has. And then immediately afterwards, seeing who he's dealing with in terms of the Park family Mm -hmm. and how they have no idea what it's like from a day-to-day basis to have to struggle and hustle or with the people that they employ, how they're living and things like that. Seeing that all so clearly initially really sets this firm foundation where it's like, see, the poverty isn't funny because look at all of these people making money and their lives off of the back of these poor folks and folks who are in poverty and they don't care. 
They yeah. have no understanding of it. They don't care. They don't they don't even want to understand. They just want them to work for you. Oh yeah. So it's funny the way the parasite kind of the way that we interact with that word throughout the course of the movie because we're like, who really is the parasite? Where is this parasitic relationship and who is it benefiting? Yeah. Really, in the long term. Who is kind of sucking the life out of another person? Right, right. Yeah. And I think depending on your perspective and where you sit in the world, you might think one versus the other. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like, okay, is this poor family parasitic to the rich family? Is the rich family parasitic to all of the poor folks that they're encountering? You could even narrow it down or make it a finer examination if you're talking about the specific relationships in which, Mm -hmm. you know, like, is Kiwu being a parasite towards the daughter? It's so complex. And I love that the name of this movie is Parasite because it really makes you examine what is a parasitic relationship. Right. Because it's certainly not symbiotic. Like, they're not equally benefiting off of one another. And it's easy to see or easy to be led in the beginning of this movie to think the key family is being the parasite. Right, right. But then as we progress, we're like, okay, no, maybe not. Maybe our preconceived notions about who is the parasite towards who are totally wrong Yeah, as we keep going through the movie. Another thing I thought that is it's a difficult discussion to have, especially with people who live in America or people who kind of ascribe to that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality is doing everything right in your life and then still being poor. Yeah. One of the things a movie explores, I think, in a very kind of understated and subtle way is the idea that you do everything right in your life and you have a promising future and then it just gets taken away from you for whatever reason. And they only touch on this two times, but Chung Suk has a medal. We don't know from what, but it's obviously very important to her. She has a medal from shot put. We see her throw a shot put one other time in the movie. And then when the Key family's um, house floods, we see that that's one of the things that Mr. Kim takes with him is the medal and the photo of her doing shot put. And to me, that indicates she probably had a promising future, but like so many other athletes, maybe family life got in the way. Maybe she got pregnant. Had maybe an injury. Injury, exactly. And those dreams and hopes and all the things that she did to get to that point were kind of shelved and she just got shuffled back into the deck, you know? And we see that too when Min is talking to Ki Woo about his university exams. He was like, you studied for those four times, so obviously you have credentials for teaching English. And it's like, what happened there? Is it because of his military service, his mandatory military service, which all South Korean men have to go through? Is that why he didn't get to go to university? Is it because of their money struggles? But like doing everything exactly the right way and then still finding yourself in a terrible situation, I think is something that is very relatable. Mm-hmm. Or like hustling, working really hard, and then not getting anywhere or not getting to where you wanted to be. I think that's a really relatable, common theme that you can find with tons of people who are very smart, very, you know, they did do everything right. And then it's like, oh, well, I got pregnant or, oh, I got injured. So I can't do those things. Absolutely. And I like that the film shows us that each member of the family has talents, has skills, 
you know, Chung Sook in particular, we see how nice she can be, even in some really dire situations. But we never find out what happened to each of them. And I think that's actually okay. Because it's almost, for our purposes as a viewer, less important what happened to them in the past, but where they are in the moment that the film starts. And where they, despite spending their working days in a fancy house, where they remain up to the point of the flood. You know, it's where they are in that, you know, semi-basement apartment that matters most, not what happened in the past. And we never reminisce on that. And the family never has time to really stop and think like, what has happened to me? What has prevented me from doing that? And they don't, they don't kind of mire themselves in those ideas. They're just like, what's next? What do I do next? What's the next stepping stone? And you see them kind of like have those visions of grandeur, but they never rest their laurels on them. They're always like, no, how do we get the next member of the family into this situation? How do we keep making money? How do we stave off imminent disaster? How do we keep up this facade of being these, you know, educated, rich, or well-to-do and able to mingle with these rich folks? How do we keep doing that? Even after terrible, awful things happen, both in the home invasion sense, bodily harm, extreme bodily harm that's happened to other people that they've committed, losing their entire home. How do they just keep maintaining that facade? And you see the facade crack the most easily in the father, Mr. Mm -hmm. Kim. My God, there are so many times that he conveys so much without a single word of dialogue. It's just, you can see the emotion and the complex emotion written all over his face in many, many scenes in this film. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. Like, he just tells you so much without saying a word often. And and that's one of the reasons that I just argue that, you know, yes, There are parts of this film that are steeped in Korean culture, but the performances just transcend language and culture. Like, you can look at his face and understand exactly what he's feeling. Yeah. I don't think he won an Oscar for this one in particular, but he did win a ton of awards for this movie. Good. (laughs) Now, having said that, this actor, Song Kang-ho, is fantastic. He is a recurring character in Bong Joon-ho's movies. I absolutely want to amplify what you said. Just his eyes specifically, some of the times when there's silence where he just lets it ride and he doesn't have to say anything. It's just, it's etched in every line on his face. Like the constant awareness of where he is below the Park family And not being able to do anything about that. And also, like, the shame that he feels when, especially, and I will talk about this later, when Mr. Park mentions how he smells, when he overhears the sort of secret conversation that Mr. and Mrs. Park are having, and also when the child says that they smell the same, and just knowing, like, there's nothing I can do. Like, I'm not going to be able to leave this basement smell behind, like, this damp kind of mildewy smell behind because I live in a basement. Yeah. I live in a place that it smells like this. What do you want me to do about it? <laughs> like, it's not just as simple as saying like, oh, we'll take a shower. As far as we know, the hygiene is there. It's just if you live in a place that smells like damp, you're not going to not be yeah. able to smell like damp. You just are going to be like that. Yeah. So 
as a person who has a really high sense of smell, I really appreciated the attention to detail that Bong Joon-ho put towards the idea of scent in this movie, which I think is something that we don't explore very much in film. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's, it's a sense that we can't touch. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like taste is something that you see a lot in film, especially movies about food or TV shows. Like if you've ever watched The Chef's Table, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) It'll make your mouth water for sure. But scent is something that we don't really touch very much in film because, I mean, people have different levels of scent, whatever, but this movie deals heavily with it. And, And honestly, it's kind of one of the big catalyzing, you know, acts or happenings in this movie that creates a lot of both good things and bad things for the families that are within them. And one of the things, like, just kind of piggybacking off of the idea of scent and, like, how Mr. Kim smells to the family, we also have the sort of catalyzing event where Mr. Park reacts to how Jun Se smells the housekeeper, Moon Guang's husband who has lived underground for four plus years how mr park reacts to how he smells and how mr kim perceives that and like sees that both husband and wife have also reacted to him in the same way like he's not worth anything but they're requiring his service and labor fantastic just yeah yeah something that we don't explore very much in movie is scent unless it's like a fetishized thing right right and then the way that he shows how mr park can't stand any of them like he just groups them all into the same class because of how they smell just absolutely perfect well and along those lines i found the whole storyline between the key family and junsei and moon guan that was so fascinating. And it really made me think about um, a book that I really find a lot of value in, which is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. And in that book, she talks a lot about how, you know, those in what's considered the lower castes in society, whether that's American society or, or any global society and within any group, how those within the lower caste are often taught by those in power to be pitted against each other. And we see that play out in a really visceral, upsetting scene where they kind of all meet up in the house and none of them are supposed to be there. They're all outsiders. They're all other. And yet they're trying to figure out, well, who is the lesser other? You know, who deserves to be there and who doesn't deserve to be there? And everyone's situation is desperate and terrible. And they ought to be allies given their position in the world, but they are are made to feel like enemies instantaneously because they're both, you know, kind of competing for the same, I'm hesitant to even say the same resources because they're barely resources. You could say breadcrumbs. Yeah, <laughs> the exactly. The same crumbs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the movie definitely sets itself up to be a poor getting one over on the rich movie. Uh But then we're pivoted into, in the second act, a poor getting over on the poor movie. Yeah. And this, like, real struggle and scrabble. And unfortunately, Moon Guang and Jun Se are overwhelmed by numbers. You know, an older woman and her husband versus two kind of middle-aged people and then their young kids 
they're just overwhelmed in numbers. Like, it's probably not going to work out for them, yeah. you know, unless they had, like, an uh, ace in the deck or whatever, but they don't. The way that we have to shift our idea of this poor family kind of insinuating themselves into a rich family and then see, like, okay, wait, that's not actually the situation here. Right. It's much more dire. And Junsei is, you know, he's kind of delirious with yeah. hunger at this point because Moon Guang hasn't been able to get back into the house and be able to feed him for probably like a week and a half. Yeah. So he's like suffering. And then we have like these this dire circumstance where Junsei is going to die if he doesn't get food on a regular basis. And Moon Guang is begging them to, at first, she's begging the mom to feed him and then she's like oh wait this is a different situation like i see now where we actually stand don't call me sis Mm -hmm. we're not on the same like now i have something over you and this power struggle between all of them which ends unfortunately kind of tragically for jensei and his wife it's crazy to see how desperately people are going to fight over the crumbs from the rich and the rich have no idea. They have right. no idea what's going on. Right. 100% ignorant of what's been happening in their house for four plus years and what's happening in their house now with the uh, Key family coming into the Park family and totally hoodwinking them for yeah. tons of money. Yeah. A, a sizable sum, according to Mr. Kim, like a sizable sum, a life-changing amount of money. And they yeah. have zero idea what's happening yeah. around them. Just absolutely fascinating. And to kind of talk about that laziness thing that I was talking about towards the beginning of the movie with when Mr. Kim is sleeping, when we get introduced to Mrs. Park, she sleeps all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Mr. Park mentions, like, she's not a good housekeeper. She can't cook. She can't clean. And we see that, too. Like, she's overfilled the dishwasher. She's boiling laundry for some reason. Like, what? We're meant to understand that she does not work. Yeah. She sleeps a lot. Yeah. And we're always like, you know, poor people are lazy. They don't want to work. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but the exhaustion of poverty makes it so that you do have to sleep more often. Yeah. But Mrs. Park is also sleeping all the time, but it's because she is bored, doesn't have anything to do. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? It's just fascinating to me that like flipping that laziness on its head, like, and she could pass out anywhere. She's just like asleep on the table. Yeah. Out in the garden. <laughs> like what is happening? To kind of go back to that, like, poor getting one over on the poor, my my notes are, like, so poorly organized for this movie because <laughs> we're, we're, like, jumping between themes here. But it's easy to do because the seeds that are kind of cast out for us to grab as we're watching this movie, they go back and forth quite a bit. Yes, like, they do. Like, Absolutely. We're, we're seeing these different themes that we need to be keeping track of differently over the course of the movie. It's not as simple as we're dealing with this theme and now we're dealing with this theme. It's very different as we go throughout the movie. But one of the things I wanted to mention is the scene where Moon Guang comes back for Junsei and the Key family is like judging them super hard. Yeah. And the mom is just, she's so judgy and, and harsh and being such an asshole to them. And then when they create this problem for themselves or they all fall down the stairs kind of comically, like a sitcom almost. Mm-hmm. And 
then Junsei and Moonguang kind of see the lay of the land and they're like, oh, wait a second. This is where we're at. Yeah. And, and then immediately the mom just kind of flips into this like, oh, no, sis, like, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're on the same team. We're at the same spot. It's like, no, no, you're not. Yeah. Oh, I love that scene. Love that scene. Yeah. It's fascinating to watch the power just like almost tangibly get handed back and forth in that scene. Oh, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. The way that it's filmed, the secrecy, it's perfect. Love it. I also wanted to mention how Mr. Park fetishizes, like, drugs and, and poverty yeah. when, when oh he's trying God, to have yes. sex with Mrs. Park. So first they start out talking about how bad Mr. Kim smells. Mm-hmm. And it it is clearly upsetting to Mr. Kim and it's embarrassing and shameful for him to have his kids hear how they discuss yeah how he smells he can't help it like we've already no, said yeah. he can't help it and then immediately Mr. Park goes into trying to put the moves on his wife but they're talking about having sex in the car and they've made fun of the driver Yoon about this and they fired him for it. And now Mr. Park is appropriating what he thinks, which didn't even happen, what he thinks Yoon did and talking about like the girl's panties in his car and like... He specifically says the cheap panties. Yeah. And talks about buying drugs. Like Mrs. Park like fetishizes that too. And they're they're role playing as poor people for sex. Yeah. Which is like is such a crushing, disgusting act for them, and it also makes you not that you were on their side initially because you're you're just like oh they're just stupid and hapless and rich right and right. they don't deserve their money but they're just dumb but now you're like okay wait there's something sinister about this mm-hmm. they're talking shit about Mr Kim and how bad he smells and then they're like oh let's have sex and talk about that yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What the hell? Anyways, (laughs) like, it's just gross to me. Like, oh, let's judge the people that work for us that we pay to provide a service. But then let's also play act as these poor people while we're having sex. Well, so I want to talk about that scene a little more because that was the scene where it really, really hit me that this was such a flip on the traditional home invasion trope in horror, which I have to say typically scares the crap out of me. (laughs) It's one of those like horror subgenres that can like really, really scare me, but it's typically marked by so much violence, Mm -hmm. you know? And this is so interesting because... It's home invasion, but everything is flipped. There's an absence of violence, and the sinister, scary stuff is happening. And other films have done this, but with the violence, the insidious nature of it all is attributed 100% to the homeowners. And we are meant to side with and feel with and be simultaneously worried for and scared for and ashamed for the people who are the home invaders, but who are trapped there. The invaders are trapped and are being held captive by these icky homeowners. And I just, I love that complete, you know, turning upside down of this trope that we see all of the time. And it has so much to say by a simple twist of that trope, we get to say so much. And not only are the homeowners trapping the key family in there, they're also trapping Junsei and Moon Guang. Yes. They existed in the house before the parks ever got there. Yeah. 
Moon Guang was the housekeeper for the initial builder of the home. And when he moved and Junsei's kind of debts caught up with him, they moved him underground into this like secret bunker situation. So they've existed there for longer than the parks have even known that the house existed. Mm-hmm. And so like it's multiple layers of home invasion. Yeah. Like certainly Junsei should not be under the house. And it's a secret, but he's also not harming anyone. He's kind of like, you say parasite, but really like Moon Guang is paying for his food with her salary. You know, like they see it as a totally fair exchange. He's hidden. She's paying for his food. He's not harming anybody. The Taiwanese people who own his debt are, I might have misunderstood how that exactly works, but the the people who have the debt over him don't know where he is. Yeah. So it's not really a parasitic situation. He just lives there. Yeah. He just exists down there. Mm -hmm. And he actually has a lot of respect for Mr. Park. And he mentions that. I'm not sure exactly what his situation is. He seems like maybe he's gone crazy from living underground for so long. Yeah. And Mr. Kim actually mentions that at the end of the movie in in the letter to his son is that things are starting to kind of blur together down underneath the house. But it is a a very interesting layer of parasite, like, or of of who should be there, who is allowed to be there, deserves to be in the house versus who is there. Mm -hmm. Very fascinating. So I want to talk about some scary scenes in this movie. The juxtaposition of... The mom and or Mrs. Park and Moon Guang coming up the stairs when it's light, when the light is on, the basement light. Uh-huh. Versus Junsei coming up the stairs in the dark and being thought to be a ghost in the home. The first time I saw this movie and Mrs. Park kind of delves into this ghost story and why her son is is so strange. I think his name is The Song. When she's talking about this ghost story and how her son like had a seizure because he thought he saw a ghost and then actually showing what happened and the fact that it's Junsei like coming up the stairs and you, all you can yeah. and all you can see is are his eyes holy crap yeah it's like how can you say this isn't a horror movie because exactly. that scared the pants off of me yeah but to see the juxtaposition of somebody coming up the stairs and just stairs in general in this movie as kind of a, a class theme going up the stairs, going down the stairs, being downstairs, being upstairs, that kind of thing. Just absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, they do so much with ascent and descent, with liminal spaces, with lines and doorways and thresholds in this film. It's very Hitchcock-esque in that way that they do just beautiful visual things to sort of cue you in, you know, here is a person entering a world where they don't belong. You know, here is a barrier, you know, to have that garden that is, when you see the door to the gates of the house, it's right there on the street. But the gardens makes you feel like you're in a completely different world, like you're out in the countryside or something like that. So all of these things with lines and barriers and things like that are just brilliant and really do follow that sort of Hitchcock model of creating a visual world that helps reinforce, you know, the messages and the journey of the characters that we're getting throughout the film. I just, I love the visuals so much. I mean, the cinematography is beautiful, first and foremost. It's just a beautifully shot film, but 
to have that added layer of the visual symbols reinforcing everything that we're doing in the story is just chef's kiss on that one. Literally living above the street and below the street, both in the key home and also in the park's home, like what exists above ground, what exists below ground. It is exactly like you said, chef's kiss. In all of those shots where we're looking either out through a window or in through a window or a doorway to give us that feeling of separation from one world or another. It's, oh, it's perfect. Yeah. And I did want to say too, I didn't write down a note for this, but before I forget, appropriating Native American culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that it has to be different culturally for South Korean folks, maybe not steeped in or as abreast of the the information that we have as American right. people and how like Indian is kind of a, a word that we don't really use so much anymore. We, you know, we, we more accurately describe them as indigenous people or Native American folks. And seeing how they just callously are like, oh, no, we're going to wear headdresses. We're going to have a, you know, a traditional what we think is to be a traditional teepee. And we got them from America. So it's OK. And like letting this kid kind of pantomime. Oh, that's how Cub Scouts are. That's integral to being a Cub Scout is appropriating Indian you know, culture and seeing how they just like so blase use that and and encourage their kid to do that and they have arrows and you know all this I thought it was fascinating and it I'm sure it resonates in a different way here but it's just fascinating to see like oh this family has no trouble with pantomiming other cultures appropriating other cultures pretending to be poor pretending to be drug addicts like they don't care they're just like oh well we're allowed to do whatever we want because we're rich (laughs) yeah i would love to know more about you know what the sort of cultural acceptable standards in korean culture or even larger asian culture are around you know appropriation and especially things when we're talking about indigenous peoples but i have to say as a viewer in the u.s it actually sort of added to the context of the film for me and gave me even more to think about because in so much as I was like, wow, that's really gross that they're wearing headdresses. I'm like, we were doing that here. Oh, yeah. Up until like super, super, super recently, you know. Yeah. Cowboys and Indians, kids' birthday parties were the norm, you know. Oh, yeah. Even even when I was little, you know, that was a very I've, – I've mentioned this before, but, you know, the sort of – I think it was like the early 2000s trend where pop stars and all of these, you know, young women were wearing feathers in their hair. Oh, yeah. Completely inappropriate now, but felt, you know, air quotes, culturally acceptable. So I actually appreciated that element of the film, even if, you know, the filmmakers were coming from a very different place and a very different understanding. As an American viewer, I took a lot out of that. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to mention that before I forgot because I totally forgot to put a note on here because it just came to me like talking about that just came to me towards the very tail end of the movie. I did want to also talk about the non-sympathy with which the Park family kind of treats the other people in the movie. Like, Mm -hmm. let's say like if we rewind four plus years and Moon Gwang came to them and was like, oh, I'm the housekeeper here and I've been the housekeeper. I know this house very well, but I need your help with my husband. He is in some trouble and we need to get out of debt. The Park family would have been like, no, (laughs) there's no way. 
Well, even the sort of curious thing, and I think this is very intentional, again, you know, not knowing a lot about modern Korean society, you know, I don't know how the news cycle in South Korea works. But, you know, it's very easy to see, like, okay, this whole neighborhood gets flooded. If it were here, if this were in our community, you'd know about it. But what you do with that information is a whole other thing. And again, you know, putting my sort of American view on this, I thought it was so fascinating that never was it asked, never was it mentioned by any of the Park family, like, oh, hey, you know, a neighborhood in our city or our province was flooded and people were displaced last night. You know, you would, any logical person in a country with an even, I, I would say anywhere in the globe now because of social media and things like that would at least know something happened in our area and it affected a lot of people. And they're like, nope, we're planning a party. And it's not even that they were like, no, we're going to actively ignore this. It's like, we're not even going to acknowledge that this yeah. happened because we are so, it doesn't affect us literally at all. But there are people in our house right now that are actively in it with this thing. And again, just showing those stark differences in class, I thought was a really, the way they illustrated that was really, really smart. Yeah. And I mean, the housekeeper doesn't live with them. It doesn't seem like the housekeeper has ever lived with them. As far as we can tell, we don't know for sure. They don't explicitly say one way or the other whether or not Moon Gwang lived there. She did have some things with her, but it didn't look like enough to say she was living there. Right. But on a Friday night, they expect Mrs. Key, uh, they expect her to stay on a Friday night while they're gone. And then their house floods. And they expect just at the drop of a hat on a Saturday for these folks that they employ to just come, like drop all their plans and just come to this kid's quote unquote impromptu birthday party. Yeah. And just like work because she intimates that she's going to be paying Kijong uh, or Jennifer. So they intimate that they're going to pay, quote unquote, Jennifer. Jessica. Jessica. J name. Uh, <laughs> generic American J name. My bad. She's just given, by the way. Yeah. Like, okay. They intimate that they're going to pay Jessica. So it's not even like, come if you want. It's like, you're coming and we're paying you. Mm-hmm. At the drop of a hat, without acknowledging anything else, like, oh, maybe you have more important things to do. Maybe you have a family that you need to be spending time with. Maybe you have other things like university work or... Maybe you have other clients. Literally anything else. And they're just like, okay, come and we'll pay you. Okay, bye. We'll see you then. Like, not even an option. Not even do you want to come. It's we'll pay you. We'll feed you. You're coming. See you later. Yeah. And I'm just like, if my boss did that and it wasn't like direly urgent if they were like oh my kid's having a birthday party you have to come but we'll pay you i'd be like yeah no my saturdays are pretty sacred and mrs park knows what she's doing there because she has that line about oh well and all of the you know au gratin and salmon steaks that you can eat kind of a wink wink nudge nudge like hey free bougie food over here yeah there's some acknowledgement there and the same with mr kim like they don't ask she, yeah. she tells her, she tells Mr. Park, I've told him to get here as soon as possible. Yeah. Like, not that he has a family or a wife. And never once do they even ask. No. They never ask, do you have a family? Do you have children? Do you have a wife? They don't care. No, they don't. All they care about is how fast 
and and this culminates in the end of the movie, how fast can you assist my family because we're paying you for that and yeah. that's what we expect. In that scene right before everything goes to hell where Mr. Park and Mr. Kim are hiding and they're wearing the headdresses, Mr. Kim is looking again, the brilliance of that actor, just uncomfortable and troubled. And never does Mr. Park say, hey, are you okay? Hey, what's going on? You seem a little off today. He's just like, hey, don't forget, I'm paying you extra for this. Again, that sort of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, I know you need the money. And look at this nice thing that I'm doing for you. Yeah. And the kind of heel turn that we have too, where Mr. Kim is doing his best to be in the moment, to be of service, Mm -hmm. even after he's had literally his entire life ruined. They have nothing left. Like everything that they own has been destroyed by the flood that happened, by sewage water, disgusting, Mm -hmm. terrifying, like dangerous thing that has happened. Like there's, you know, electricity sparking and stuff. And then Mr. Kim is just doing his best, trying to be relatable, trying to help. And he just says something kind of offhand And Mr. Park is like, you've towed over the line. Yeah. And Mr. Park is constantly. Constantly. Overstepping that boundary of employer to employee, asking him to come in on his day off, asking him to do stuff out of the scope of his job, being inappropriate and demanding a lot of time and energy from this person. And he is the one that's constantly worried about Mr. Kim's towing over the line. And it's like, how could you possibly think that Mr. Kim has towed over the line when you have infringed upon his life, mm-hmm. asked him to do things that he would not normally do and is not paid to do. Yeah. He's your driver, not your pantomime, you know, cowboys versus Indians. Like, <laughs> And you're like stand-in therapist in certain scenes, like in yeah. the car, you know, like he's doing not just like the labor of driving him, but there's a lot of emotional labor involved in that position. Yeah. But yet he's like, oh, you have stepped over the line. Now I know where the lay of the land is. You've stepped over this arbitrary line that I have drawn. Yeah. And I don't care about all of the lines that I've crossed with you. This is the moment. Yeah. And that underscores in Mr. Kim's mind, this is who I am to this person. I'm not a member of the family. I'm not an associate. I'm not a friend. I'm not even an acquaintance of this person. I am lower than them. Yeah. And I know it. And then when he sees Mr. Kim act in that way to Junsei, when he smells him to get the car keys to, you know, rescue his son, he sees it again and he's like, nope, that shit's not going to fly. Well, and never mind the fact, too, that at first, before he tosses Mr. Park the car keys... Park wants Kim to drive them to the hospital as Kim is standing there. Now, granted, they don't know it's his daughter, but is standing there literally trying to stop the bleeding on a person who has been stabbed. Right. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's cool. Just leave her. Yeah. You need to drive us to the hospital because our kid is having a seizure. Yeah. And like in terms of priority, obviously, he's not thinking clearly, but it's like, You have a man who has stabbed people. Right. (laughs) Who is stabbing people. Yeah. The crime is still happening. Right. Like a dangerous situation. Your housekeeper is fighting for her life. Yeah. And you're like, no, I need to get my son to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I get it. That's pretty terrifying to see your kid have a seizure. But 
the family also is not realistic about what's happening with the seizure because well right yeah yeah that's we, not true yeah we know that yes seizures can be serious but often it's more like you need to kind of wait it out yeah. and sure they don't know what kind of seizure this is it could be a terrible seizure but the mom is like oh they, they, he needs to get he has to have life-saving you know health care in 15 minutes which we know from personal experience yeah, is not the case. That's not a thing. Not always, anyways. Yeah. Now, if it was out of the blue, obviously, first seizure ever. Sure. Scary. It's for sure scary. But in this case, like, he has a track record of having seizures during traumatic incidents. Yeah. And when he saw this guy before, when he saw Junsei before, he had a seizure. That's what's happening again. He's seeing this ghost. He's, he's thinking there's a traumatic event happening. He's having a seizure. Or it could be the cake. Who knows? I mean, yeah, it could be the cake that's giving that's him a seizure. Entirely possible. I didn't even think about that because, like, food and like uh, reactions uh-huh. to food is kind of a thing. Like the peach fuzz thing. I don't know. It could be the cake. But in either case, he's having a seizure, and it's like, yes, sure, your child probably needs immediate yeah. medical care. Yeah. But at the same time, you have a dude who's stab out here stabbing right. people. <laughs> you should be concerned with. Not only the safety of the person who is stabbed and, you know, the people that you employ who are fighting for their lives, but also any of the other guests. Like, yeah, if the dude stabbed this person, he could stab literally anybody. What does this say about Mr. Park's priorities for the care and safety of anybody? Yeah. Like, he clearly has his priorities wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, his wife has his son, so, you know, he's safe. He's not going to get stepped on or anything. And the inciting incident is this dude with a knife. Yeah. He's come out here. He's already bloodied. What the hell's going yeah. on? Still there. Still has the knife. Still attacking people. Yeah. Attacking your workers, people you employ, and you're not concerned about their safety. Not at all. Oh, so frustrating. <laughs> And, like, I love the turn, the heel turn of this moment, because when you see Junsei come out of the basement and grab the knife, you think, I know how this is going to go. Yeah. And it's not how it goes at all. Yeah. And he gets out there. He stabs Jessica. Obviously, terrible situation. She pulls the knife out. She's like, oh, shit, I'm bleeding. This sucks. And she kind of deals with it in her own, like, blasé way that she's been doing this entire, the, the entire movie. But then to see Mr. Kim turn and stab and kill Mr. Park yeah, after seeing how he treated him, it's like Mr. Kim had this moment where he's like, wait, we've always been on the same side. And I see Mr. Park treat Junsei with disdain, with disgust, even though he has no idea that this man has been living in his basement and, yeah. you know, is in dire straits right now and that he is the husband of Moon Guang, who's been here longer than any of you. Yeah. This is my person. This yeah. is this is my the enemy of my enemy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I have to treat you. I have to do to you what is owed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And cr- <laughs> you've treated all of us like crap. So now I'm going to out of anger. And obviously it was a rash decision, which is unlike him because he's he's very um, placid and, yes. and calculating. And he always has a plan for everything. Well, this does not seem to be part of his plan. No, <laughs> definitely not. I also have to wonder if the end of this movie, the very tail end where 
Kiwu is kind of waxing poetic about what's going to happen. He finds out that his dad is actually now living under the house and mm-hmm. and he's waxing poetic like I'm going to go to school and I'm going to earn a ton of money and then I'm going to buy this house and I'm going to free you and you, me and mom are all going to be in this house again and safe. I have to wonder if maybe that's another part of the reason why people are like, oh, this isn't a horror movie. Because of that, like, hopeful glimmer. Oh, but I think it's so hopeless. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's hopeful at all. You know, I mean, that's, again, why it is a horror film to me, because it's utterly hopeless at the end, you know? Oh, for sure. He's yeah. not going to get that house. There's no way. No. Never, never. They couldn't hustle their way out of the situation in the first place. They'll never be able to hustle yeah. their way. Like, now he's he has a, a crime He's been under probation. He had brain surgery. Like, yeah, he's putting up flyers for cash. Like, he's being tailed by detectives. He'll never get there. Yeah. But he can't see that. Yeah. And in a way, when you're in poverty, you can never think that way. You can never, like, get too mired in your own despair because then what do you have to work for? Right. Exactly. Woof. It's a heavy one. It is super heavy. This The whole movie is just... <sighs> It deals with class horror in a way that is palatable, but also, like, crushing. I I mentioned when the credits started rolling, like, oh, well, I don't need to watch this movie for the next five years. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't think I can. I don't know if I can do it. Yeah, it's excellent, but it is. It is a lot. It's a challenge. It's a struggle for sure. Next time, um, it's funny because this is actually a really good wind up in a weird kind of way for our next film. We talked a lot about Hitchcock today, and we're actually going to be doing a Hitchcock film next time uh, because it is another anniversary. The Birds is celebrating its 60th anniversary. So we are going to cover that next time. I love this movie so freaking much so i'm so excited to talk about it me too because i've actually never seen the whole thing oh yay so this will be i've actually only ever seen all of one hitchcock movie and it's psycho okay i've never seen any other not all the way through i mean i've seen like clips of him obviously in the course of life but i've never seen anything except for the first psycho film well i'm a big hitchcock fan anyway but actually one of my film professors when i was in film school was a hitchcock devotee wrote a book about alfred hitchcock so we talked a lot about hitchcock in film school so i come armed with a lot of useful and not useful knowledge but i have a particular affection for the birds so we'll talk more about that cool next time i only know that hitchcock's a bastard well there's that too (laughs) there's a lot to talk about in terms of him yeah yeah i've I've heard that uh he was particularly terrible on the set of this movie Mm -hmm. so i'll be interested to explore that after actually watching the movie. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.